Hi, and welcome. Today I'm talking with Professor Howard Williams. We've actually done an interview with him on the early medieval public archaeology, and today's a whole new topic. I've also split this episode in half to make it a little easier to listen to. As you know, I love interviewing students, scholars, amateurs, academics, and so many more. And it's great to have a guest come back again. Also, I'm a francophone from Canada. My name is Rosie, and this is my podcast. I guess now we're digging into history, eh? Today I'm talking with Professor Howard Williams. Thank you for being here and talking to us. Hello, Rosie. Yes, uh, we can talk about the dig. And there are many archaeological digs, but at the moment, everyone is thinking and talking about and tweeting about one the dig in particular, and that's the film, The Dig. Uh, this come out this year on Netflix, and it's already getting massive positive reviews and lots of passionate interest because it's uh, based on real events. It's based on a actual archaeological excavation. In fact, I actually think it's the first ever film, big film, ever produced that attempts to, you know, represent an archaeological excavation that actually happened in detail. Um, and there's so many fictional ones. But anyway, so that's The Dig, and that's what we're going to be talking about today. And it's all based on the 1939 excavations at the famous early Anglo-Saxon burial site of Sutton Hoo in Suffolk, England. So when they started this, if we're talking uh, in the historical sense, yeah. they didn't know what they were going to find. This was yeah. all very big surprise. Oh, absolutely. Yes, yes. Um, so um, perhaps I could start off by explaining what we now know about Sutton Hoo, and that'll explain why The Dig is such an important film and it's so it's such an interesting moment, um, because this is actually the heart of one of the key things I study about the early Anglo-Saxon kingdoms, one of the early Anglo-Saxon kingdoms that emerged after the collapse of the Roman province of Britain in the early to mid-5th century AD is uh, the East Anglian kingdom. And the site of Sutton Hoo, we now know as a princely burial site of perhaps one of the dynasties or the dynasty that became predominant and took forward the East Anglian kingdom in the late 6th and early 7th centuries. And so we now know of it as a unique and amazing site where we have burial mounds dating to the period, perhaps just before Christian conversion, where these Germanic-speaking early Anglo-Saxon kings were forging territorial power bases. And in this case, they were stretching their influence across the modern counties of Norfolk and Suffolk in the east of England. And perhaps at times they were extending their power far across lowland Britain beyond that through diplomacy, but also through warfare. And uh, the East Anglian kings seem to be burying their dead in these massive burial mounds at Sutton Hoo. Now, we know about this site from multiple excavations. We now know that people were digging into these burial mounds. And by a burial mound, I mean a huge, great mound of earth. And these are substantial in size. And we now know there's at least 18 of these burial mounds. 
And we now know from modern excavations that this site was one perhaps of a series of burial sites along the ridge to the east of the estuarine river Deben. So it's a big wide estuary that stretches in from the North Sea and on a ridge to its east, there would have been this line or multiple lines of burial mounds. And they started, we know about these, well, we don't know about these, but we know now that the first excavations into them were in the 16th or 17th centuries. There's then an account from the 1860s, I think it is, but of another intervention. But the famous excavations first took place on the grounds owned by Edith Pretty, who was a widow, and she was very inspired by spiritualism. There is one account she even had a vision of the biggest of the burial mounds and, and, and riders riding round it. And she had this sort of kind of precognizance of the presence of something important in this burial mound. And so she hired a local amateur archaeologist called Basil Brown to investigate these burial mounds. And uh, those are the famous excavations. And in 1938, Basil Brown went to the site and he decided to dig three burial mounds. And he didn't go for the biggest one, um, assuming that that one had already been ransacked and rifled. And he was right to think that because later we found that robbers in past centuries had dug a central trench to try and find a or burial chamber and treasures in that mound. And he didn't go for that one straight away, even though Edith Pretty wanted him to. And he excavated mounds that we now call Mound 2. Mound three and now four. Now, obviously, in 1938, he didn't call them Mound two and three and four, uh, but but they've become known as that. And he excavated 1938 and he had mixed results. He had a lot of trouble digging into the sandy soil, very sandy soil. He found different things in these burial mounds. They were all disturbed in different degrees, all been broken up and damaged by previous ransackings. In mounds three and four, he found traces of cremation burials. So they burnt the body and collected up parts of the ashes. And he was just finding traces of this calcined bone. In one, they buried the dead on a oak tray or perhaps part of a dugout boat. We're not sure. And that's shown in the film. And I'll come on to that. Um, that's in mound three. And he also found with that some really interesting objects that he didn't really know what they were. But we now know they're really exciting in themselves. Uh, the lid of a bronze ewer, a like, large jug that would have come from the Byzantine Empire and a fragment of limestone plaque. And also, you know, he found these objects, you know, with the cremated remains and this sort of um, this tray as well as an axe head, uh, a sort of iron axe head, a Francisca, we'd call that, a throwing axe. And so he found this. And at the time, we didn't have any a bone analysis, but we now know that that individual would have been a cremation of a, a man, an adult male and a horse. So they sacrificed a horse and burnt that as well. Uh, but we, he didn't know that at the time. Then he had dug another mound, uh, mound four. He contained what we now know is the cremated remains of a man and a woman and a horse and uh, playing pieces, uh, gaming pieces um, that had been um, placed uh, with the dead in a bronze bowl. So they cremated somebody and collected them into a bronze bowl, put a cloth over the top and put that in the mound. So bronze bowls, sacrificing horses, playing pieces, bits of imported exotica. This is high status for the early Anglo-Saxons. You know, those, those two burials alone were crying out, this is special. And though cremation has destroyed the remains, he would have known, even as an amateur, this is something exciting. And then Mound 2, 
was even more interesting for Brown. He found it was heavily damaged and he misunderstood the dig. He thought there was a burial in a little boat because he found iron rivets. And we now know that actually he'd misunderstood it because it was re-excavated later. And I'll come on to that. We now know that that mound two was an inhumation under a ship. They dug a burial chamber and then pulled a big seagoing vessel over the top. But he didn't quite understand that because he misunderstood an earlier robber trench as the edges of a small little dinghy. So he misunderstood it, but he found traces of a drinking horn, a bit of a bucket, a cauldron, a bronze bowl, a blue glass jar, a silver mounted box, a silver mounted cup, knives and a sword and a shield. So really amazing high status stuff, but damaged, broken, robbed and in a mess. And if Basil Brown had stopped digging in 1938, those three burials today, if no one else had excavated the site, we would still be saying this is an amazing site. You wouldn't have the fame. Sutton who wouldn't be famous like it is now. But from an archaeologist within the archaeological world, those would be three top notch, exciting burials. But he came back in 1939. She brought him back for a second season on the eve of the Second World War. Basil Brown came back and had a go at excavating Mound One. And he kept going because he discovered another ship and he was aware from a nearby site found in the 19th century at Snape that ship burial was an early Anglo-Saxon thing. And he was quite a well-educated man, self-taught, and he'd already read up on the Ossabea ship uh, from Norway and he was aware of the Snape discovery and he knew that this could be a Viking or Anglo-Saxon vessel and he found the edge of this massive ship and he kept going, he kept pulling it apart and excavating. And it was got the attention of the local museum, but also got the attention of Charles Phillips at Cambridge, Selwyn College, Cambridge, who came along and in shock realised the scale of what was being found. And basically there's nuances to the story, but basically took over the dig from Brown, said, you can't do this anymore. We're bringing in. And he called around all he pulled in all his favours as an university academic together. What is now seen as like an all stars dream team of mid 20th century archaeologists um, as names that are you know famous. So it's like a, it's like a Marvel Avengers film where they sort of pull in all the celebrities and they're all there starring and still starring and also starring. And so you had OGS Crawford, um, you had William Grimes, you had Peggy Piggott and Stuart Piggott. And you had, among others, also Charles Phillips. And there were others, too. And he had to, all of this was done in a rush, a panic with no money and with no time to excavate what they knew was going to be an exceptionally big ship. And the possibility that at the centre there could be an undisturbed burial chamber. And they were proved right. It was a phenomenal find. The burial chamber in the ship at Mound One was untouched. The robbers had missed it. They hadn't dug deep enough and they dug off centre. And they found it's the largest and wealthiest assemblage of grave goods found from any period of time from the island of Britain. And it is the richest, therefore, early Anglo-Saxon 6th, 7th century burial. And the objects contained, um, you can see in the British Museum, the National Trust now own the site and you can visit and see replicas and a museum there. And those finds are famous. Everybody knows the Sutton who helmet as reconstructed and on display in the British Museum. It's on the front of so many history books. It's an icon of England, London, Britain, history. You know, you can see world books of history. It'll be one of the, alongside Stonehenge, Tutankhamun, 
the Sutton helmets. You know, it's one of a, perhaps a top 20 of European, at least, iconic objects. But there's much more than the helmet. And you've got to remember that the helmet was not reconstructed until 1945, 1946. So the helmet, they didn't sort of pick up this helmet. And go, oh, look, the helmet. No, that was just a mess of hundreds of fragments. But they did find golden garnet jewellery of an exceptional quality, a pair of shoulder clasps, a purse. Um, they also found a scepter, a strange scepter, a whetstone, a ceremonial whetstone, a iron standard, so objects of regalia that people immediately started thinking, well, this could be kind of a bling of a king. This is the stuff that, you know, only someone of high status ceremonial function would have. They also found weaponry. So there were spears. There was an amazing shield at the head of the grave. There was a sword and there was a unique all iron axe hammer. So it has an axe at one side, a hammer at the other, and it's got an all iron shaft. And so that is almost exceptional. We've never found anything like that in Britain. So you've got an amazing sword with gold and garnet hilt. You've got a shield, you've got and a mail shirt as well. So there was weaponry, there was regalia, but that was not all. There was a set of silver vessels that had come from the Eastern Mediterranean, from the Byzantine Empire. There were bronze uh, hanging bowls, three of them. We've never had a burial with three bronze hanging bowls. And these were probably made in modern day Scotland, um, you know, from Pictish territories. We also have amazing other objects, some humble objects too. But, you know, we have maplewood cups. We have a lamp that must have been lit for this grave, we have a pottery flask, some more modest things, gaming set of gaming pieces. So, you know, those are just some of the 250 plus objects found in the burial chamber. And they found the chamber. They found that this has all been buried in a sort of miniature house, a little chamber set into the ship. Like the dead person was going off to the next world or was living somehow in that mound. And all of this had been found in very poor state of preservation and there was no very good bone preservation. They didn't find evidence of sacrificed horses, cows, sheep, goats, pig, dogs, as we do find in other graves. And they found no body. And it was thought for a long time it was a cenotaph that this rich assemblage had been buried with the dead because they didn't have the body. But no, phosphate analysis later found that there were traces of a body, but the acid soil had eaten it away. So mound one. Basil Brown was knocked aside and this internationally famous dream team, as they were going to become, took over the dig. And Brown was allowed to still work on the site and deal with the ship, but he wasn't allowed in the burial chamber by the university based academics. And there were tensions about that. And there's recorded in diaries uh, that Brown didn't quite like Phillips. And uh, I can imagine there was a class tension and there was a personality tension and like any, if ever you've been digging on any archaeological feature and someone comes and takes over it be it a, a rich chamber grave be it a small pit full of cess material you are angry that someone has chucked you off it it becomes personal so you can understand that anyway this story hit the papers it became a massive story i had to have a policeman guarding it 24 7 just in case someone tried to rob it uh, they had to rush it because war was coming you know, war was literally coming. People were being called up. You know, any adult male was being called up in some regard into the armed services or they were really worried about what was going to be happening. And um, they were rushing and they managed to get the dig. There was a coroner's inquest. It was declared not treasure trove, meaning in terms of the law as it was. And up to 1996, it was declared to be the owner of the landowner. It was decided this was not a hoard. 
buried with the intention of recovery. If it had been, then the Crown would have owned it in British law. It was decided it was the landowners. So Mrs. Pretty, the coroner decided because it was a burial and the poem Beowulf was read out at the coroner's inquest to give an illustration of early Germanic funerals and that this was not intended for recovery to prove that this was a funerary deposit. So it's not treasure under law. And Mrs. Pretty got it and she did something exceptional. We still don't know exactly why she decided to give it to the nation for nothing. And she gave it to the British Museum. She stipulated it had to go to the British Museum, the place where most people could see it, as said in the film. But she also stipulated that replicas had to be made available for Ipswich Museum, the local museum. So this was astounding. This was called the million pound grave in the papers at the time. And it was probably if it had been sold, if she tried to sell it, um, it would have been probably more than a million pound. But that was the newspaper headline, Saxon Chieftain, million pound grave. And she got it and she could have kept it. She could have sold it to a rich American. She could have kept it. She could have whatever. But she decided to give it to the nation. She turned down. I think it was an OBE that was offered to her for that act. And there's the British Museum has never had and never has since had such an act of generosity of a single gift to the British Museum. So it went into the underground in storage, it went immediately to London and immediately they took it out of the British Museum and stuffed it in an underground train station with most of the other materials from the British Museum to wait out the war from the Luftwaffe's bombing. And it survived the war. And then in 1945-46, the British Museum began the long job of reconstructing the grave. And so they started that work and the work lasted until the 1970s. And they finally started publishing the results in the 1970s through to the 1980s. And all that time, these finds had been on display. They did further excavations in the 60s because the ship had been left open by Brown. He hadn't had time to rebuild the mound. In fact, tanks were driven over the mounds as British Army practice site. And they'd gone over the ship. And I should have explained, I never, I didn't earlier, when I say they, they found a ship, they found the shadow of a ship, of the wood had changed, stained the soil. They found the clench nails, the iron clench nails that held the, the timbers together. So you had the shape of a ship, but the wood had been turned to stained sand. So this was a very fragile thing in itself, 27 metre long ship. And it stayed there covered in bracken and things were dro driven over it. So the British Museum went back in the 60s and did a proper topographic survey. They did more excavation and they planned the ship properly. And then a whole other story I could tell you about was in the 1980s through to 2001, a proper modern excavation took place led by Professor Martin Carver that excavated half of the rest of the site, the rest of the burial mounds. And he found most of them robbed, but he found a whole host of other new burials, disturbed and damaged, but revealing new evidence of the rest of the burial mounds. And they're all late 6th, 7th century. There's other exciting finds from the site I could talk about another time. There's later execution graves. And there's other there's a Bronze Age field systems he found underneath. You know, there's lots of things to talk about. But in terms of the site, he was able to put Mound One in context and he was able to do a proper excavation. And in the I think penultimate season, they did something exceptional. They found one burial that was under a mound that was so shallow, no grave robbers had noticed it before. And they dug down and found twin pits. And um, I'll come back to this. I was working on this this season and I was working on these graves. And they came down and they found a horse in one pit and they found an intact adult male 
weapon burial intact, undisturbed in the other pits. So actually, that's the second only undisturbed burial at Sutton Hoo was Mound 17, excavated in 1991 by the Martin Carver field season. And he found a much poorer but still lavish, rich weapon burial with a comb, a sword, a shield, a, a bowl and so on in a coffin or something, some kind of constructions around, uh, maybe a, uh, we call it coffin, but that's a bit anachronistic, but some kind of container. And the robbers had missed that one because there was a pair. The horse had been put to the north of the mound, the mound to the south, and the robber trench that tried to rip it out in the 16th, 17th century had gone to the centre, logically thinking there'd be a burial there. So we have two lucky cases where robbers hadn't found these burials. And that was excavated in very sophisticated modern conservation methods and analysis. And the rest of the site has been revealed. So we have, we have not every barrow has been dug. We now think there's about 18 mounds and 10 have now been excavated at Sun Hu. And Martin Carver's excavations made sure they didn't dig the whole site. But now we have a much better understanding of the broader archaeology of Sun Hu. But it all stems from that Basil Brown 1938-1939 famous excavations producing the Sun Hu treasure i'm gesticulating with quote marks of caution that it's often called treasure it's sometimes even called a hoard even though it's not it's a grave goods placed with at least one dead person as part of a funerary ritual some of the objects are lavish and you'd call treasure because they're precious metal but there's many of the objects are made of wood horn textile as well as silver gold iron you know bronze and so on so it's a rich range of a burial assemblage a burial fit for a king and the whole, I'll end with the point that we don't know the identities of any of these individuals beneath these mounds, but we think that it's the early Anglo-Saxon dynasty of the Wuffingas, who, and one of their kings that we think is most likely, most scholars would argue, is the occupant of Mound 1, was King Raidweld, Raidwald, who was recorded by the Venerable Bede a century later as a Bretwalder, as an overking, a, a ruler of great power. And Bede hates him. Bede is a Northumbrian monk writing about the pagan kings of old and how they converted to Christianity. And all he cares about is who are the good kings? Well, the good kings are the Northumbrian kings, even if they were pagan, because they're the ancestors of the, the patron of my monastery. So I have to say the Northumbrian pagan kings are great. Even when they slaughter monks, they probably deserved it because... The pagan king is Northumbrian doing the slaughtering. You know, that's his angle. But also he didn't like. Sorry, but forgive the pun. That was his angle <laughs> because they were all angles. <laughs> but the other king he didn't like was Raidwald because Raidwald had accepted Christianity um, from Ethelbert of Kent, the first Christian king of the Anglo-Saxons, the king of Kent. He'd accepted Christianity, but he let his wife talk him out of it. Now, in classic misogynistic fashion, B doesn't even bother mentioning the Queen who talked Raidwold out of return to the worship of devils, as, as Bede remembers it. So the only thing that Bede wants to tell us about is that uh, Raidwold was a bit of a, an apostate. He accepted the true faith, according to Bede, and then denounced it again. But he does record his military power and his, his strength and prestige. So he's one character that may be the body that's been eaten away by acid but whose grave goods were strewn in this burial chamber that Basil Brown excavated in the centre of a ship and that Charles Phillips then took forward this excavation and revealed just at the outbreak of the Second World War. And the site, as I said, is a bigger story, but just to, to wrap up the story, it's, it's important to say that historically 
um, Mrs. Pretty, whose land was commissioned on, she never got to see any of this. She got to see it come out of the ground, but she never got to see the reconstructed helmet. She never got to see the reconstructed bronze bowl. She never got to see it in the British Museum because it, it all started being displayed at the British Museum in 1947-48. And she had died, sadly, in 1942. So... Her legacy is this wonderful, the exception, it's the centre of the Sutton Who in Europe exhibition in the British Museum. And still one of the or thing I go to see, you know, who cares about everything else? Go and see the Sutton Who treasure. And, and it's a centrepiece and it deserves to be because it is an exceptional burial. And it appeals to people today uh, for many reasons. It's an exceptional find. It tells us a, a glimpse at early England. It shows that it really changed. It was a game changer in archaeological and historical thinking, because until then, the early Anglo-Saxon kingdoms were seen as really primitive, really backward. And suddenly we saw a burial that showed all these connections, all these connections with the Frankish world, with the Scandinavian world, with the Byzantine world, um, kings that had power and authority. And it suddenly shifted our understanding. And it's also important because it's the earliest burial of an English royal. You know, so it has that for those that are into kingly history, political history, it is a starting point of English kingship. Uh, it's a bit of a over-exaggeration. It's not really. But, you know, it, for simple terms, it, it appeals to people in that way. And it also appeals to people because it's a, a king on the cusp of Christianization. You know, it's a kingdom in, in tension. It's looking south and east towards Frankia and the Christian kingdoms of the Franks and in Kent. And it's looking north and east towards Scandinavia and the pagan world. And it's a ship burial. So it's a foreshadowing of the Viking Age as well. And the connections around the North Sea before the Viking Age. So there's so many reasons people love and are fascinating by the individual finds, the burial assemblage, the story of early England, the story of East Anglia, kingship, Christian conversion, but not quite yet. So it's on the verge of so much. It's, sort of, it's a story of becoming. And many people do see it in a, in a very emotional way as a, a story about the origins of England. And of course, people do make the constant connection to the fact this was at the very being found right at the start of the Second World War, where Germanic invaders past had made England what it is. And yet Germanic invaders present were very much a, a real and present danger and a, a for not only England in small terms, but for Western democracy per se, you know, and you can characterise the Second World War in all sorts of ways. And I'm not trying to be over patriotic. I'm trying to say that is the way it has been perceived. I'm not saying that's the way I perceive that. That is the way it's often been seen, that this is a very evocative and almost patriotic excavation, but not because they thought of it in that way, but it became that because of what the war did to it. It became almost reburied almost immediately again, entombed in stasis to then rise again into the British Museum afterwards. I hope that's not too uh, poetic, but I think it has captured the imagination for that reason as well. Absolutely. I have a really funny question, but how did the name Sutton Who get put on this site? OK, yeah, that's a good question. It's a Hoch place name. And this is an old English place name element, meaning a rise or a promontory. So we have... Um, it's very difficult to do it without maps. You have to imagine a wide open estuary. So when the sea comes in, it's brackish, water is flooding up. It's very open. And then it's got, at this point, it has the river changes direction. So it, it's heading towards out from a relatively small river out and becomes an estuary just a few miles to the north. And then it's heading southwest, but then it changes direction and heads towards the sea southeast. 
And at this point, there's on the left hand side as you're going down downstream, so that's the east side, there's these multiple promontories with coons going up between them. And these are the horse, the, the hoes, the, the, the sort of, um, and even in the Suffolk dialect, it's still a Sutton Ho. You don't say, or Sutton Ho, not Sutton Who, as in a sort of posh English who, you know, as in woohoo, you know, as in who is that? Um, it is hull and it's like um it's basically a promontory a ridge sticking out from higher land out into the estuary and this was a very careful positioning sutton simply means the southern toon the southern farm so it's the hose of the southern farm and the farm nearby is called sutton so the sutton place name then became a parish in the 12th 13th century preserving a name that referred to an earlier relationship with a usually a Norton, a North Farm that's elsewhere. It doesn't always have to have a North Farm. It can have an East and a South. But, you know, my point is it's a description of later centuries in the Anglo-Saxon period where there was an estate system set up and that was the Southern Farm. And this is the hose on the Southern Farm, the hose, the promontories. So some people have thought it comes from Hlau, which is Old English for burial mound. And they said that these are the burial mounds of Sutton. No, it comes from the natural topography. But the natural topography is not irrelevant because it's it's on this site, this hose, that the Anglo-Saxons seem to have built these prominent burial mounds so that they're overlooking the river so you can see the tidal river from them and when you're sailing along the river or rowing most likely or just being taken by the tide down you are seeing these mounds dominating the view of the river and the river is important it's important for communications it may have been an important boundary with the east saxon kingdom so it may have been a political boundary at this point. So it's an artery of communication. It's a boundary. And the mounds may be as much there to project the presence of the dead to neighbours and enemies as much as to be a homely, friendly, like, oh, we've got our big, rich farmstead and our estate and we've got our burial mounds in the back garden. Though no, these are prominent. These are public facing is the term you'd call it today. Extrovert monuments. They are out there dominating that landscape and they would have been seen um, if you go to Sutton Hoo today to the National Trust site there's a 19th century conifer plantation that blocks the view of the river but historically you would have had clear sights of these burial mounds and they may have had posts on top of them the ship may have had its mast up so they may have even been a, a originally intended to mark that there's a ship there with a mast um, not a full size mast of the sophistication of a Viking Age longship but still a mast that would be an assistance on the open seas if you had to wind in your favour um, and it wasn't so strong as to break it. So, you know, they, they would have been only a rowing boat, but with the ability to put up a smaller sail to assist. And they would have had to have pulled the ship up to that ridge from the river. So it, the river is part of the ceremony of the funeral. At least two funerals had ships buried on that ridge. And the others would have been associated with great cremation ceremonies involving fire, animal sacrifice. So it's like a, a public theatre for the funeral and then for the burial mounds. Uh, and so that's where the place name comes from. I guess it's kind of like marking a grave with a gravestone, right? You're yeah. wanting to know where that is. It's, a, it's marking it, but on a scale that, I mean, apart from the most grandiose of 19th century mausoleum and, uh, you know, these um, very few people get a gravestone that you'd be able to see from five miles away or three, even three miles away, you know, as a, a landmark. In a modern analogy, I don't know about your particular part of the world, but it's certainly in the UK, some of the Jubilee monuments of the 19th century, some of the war memorials uh, built on the on the heights above a town. We have 
in some parts. It doesn't happen like that everywhere in the UK. It depends on how individual communities decided to memorialise the First and Second World Wars. But that's the analogy. It's like monuments that sort of project out long distance so everyone can see them when they're coming along through the territory. So, yeah, there is an amazing site. But, you know, when I say this, I, I don't want to give you the impression it's like some kind of um, Tolkien-esque landscape of dramatic hills. This is very low-lying, subtle landscape. But still, within that subtle topography, they were making statements. Yeah, it kind of reminds me of them building on hillsides their, you know, their forts or castles or whatnot. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's almost like dominating that landscape. Yeah, wanting people to remember who's buried there. Of course, we've lost their names, but. But presumably people would have remembered the funeral, but then also remembered the named mounds. So you had a sequence of kings and Tolkien could, took that idea for his riders of Rohan. When uh, Aragorn and, uh, and, and the rest of them are riding up to Edoras, they pass by the burial mounds and uh, you know, one by one marking kings. And you know, Tolkien is, was writing this after the discovery of Mound One. He'd had a copy of Antiquity. He was in, he'd read about the uh, Charles Phillips's excavation report. So that idea would have played in his mind about the idea of a succession of barrows on a ridge. I think, and he probably got that idea from elsewhere as well. But that that's one of the yeah. <laughs> and I guess to wrap up this section on Sutton Who, the actual dig, I always think a bit historically on my end. So what did all of this create historically? Did we find out new things about the Anglo-Saxons and maybe their culture, their tradition? or? Yeah, yeah. well, there's still debates about whether it can be rightly called a pagan grave and whether it can be called. There's been um, the shifting debates about how we interpret the site, as with everything. Martin Carver is very much a strong opinion in uh, following his excavations that this is a the East Anglian Kingdom was a defiantly pagan expressions of its kingship through an experimental set of funerary rituals that were trying to sort of stand off against Christian kings who were doing things following a new religion. Um, I think we can see it as more of a slightly differently, but I, I'm very influenced by his ideas. And I think that this idea that these are political rhetoric, these are statements of power by kings who may have not fully achieved that power. But we're not seeing wealthy burials in this late 6th and early 7th century because everyone had achieved a full territorial dominance of their kingdoms. They were very insecure crisis monuments that are asserting authority, very much like, to use crude analogies, if you think of early medieval leaders like petty warlords or drugs barons, they are using their funerals to make audacious, ostentatious and memorable events that are not only expenditures of material goods but performances and that they are trying to do this to consolidate power that they don't quite have yet and christianity proves a better strategy in part to achieve that power of a bigger territorial span and allows them to invest in monasteries and invest in a ritual system that allows them to consolidate that power but they didn't know that at that time. We can't back project. So I think we see this as an experimental stage in funerary expenditure by kings who are making it up as they're going along. And that's why I'm, I'm very cynical about seeing them as pagan, because pagans have been around for a long time not doing this <laughs> or pre-Christians were allowed. It's not something that everyone was doing it. And I find it hilarious when people use Mound One in, in isolation to say this is what Anglo-Saxon kings did. No, this is what one crazy dude did or what his actually not what he did, but what his descendants did. 
right? And no one tried it before and no one thought of it afterwards. You can almost, you could make an argument, no one has dared to, that this was just a big embarrassment of a guy no one liked and everyone thought, well, he said he wanted all these, oh, what does he want now? What's he say? Oh, he's, is he dead yet? No, he's, what's he saying now? Oh, he wants all the silver in the grave. Right, yeah, dad, right, okay. And, and you know, well, we'll have to do it, you know, he wants it, you know, or whatever. You can almost make the argument out that it's, it was an over- it was over the top. It took it too far. And there's no other burial like it because <laughs> there was nothing left to bury. Or, you know, there's lots of different ways of seeing it. Um, historically, though, it is a moment or a process over about 50 years or 60 years where we see uh, the East Anglian dynasty using their funerals to make grandiose statements about their identity. And my point is simply, it may not say oh, status that I have, it's power that I want. And it's aspirational. So I think that's the big story I take away from it, although different scholars will pitch the, the burials in a slightly different way. And you'll read things very differently in different sources. But I think the point is this this is a really exciting and dynamic time for early English kingship and territorial kingship emerging. Um, and these are rival kingdoms. So they're, they're all trying to play off each other. That's the big historical moment, I think, the late 6th and early 7th century as a time of kingdoms, not necessarily forming, but um, trying to form. Absolutely. Yeah, that does sound like it's quite important to understanding or even having theories yeah. on what's going on. And this really changed this. And, and there's other burial sites known. And there are other sites. We have other wealthy burials. And most recently, you'll be uh, perhaps uh, your listeners will be aware of the King of Bling, the Prittlewell Prince, a chamber burial found ahead of road construction. Um, well, uh, 17, 18 years ago in Prittlewell in Essex. And we think this is a burial of the late 6th century, perhaps uh, of the whoever was buried in Mound One's father's or grandfather's generation but a rival dynasty perhaps the east saxon kings and it's been suggested possibly a number of east saxon kings whose names come down to us it may have been but the point is all these kingdoms were doing over two three four generations were experimenting in exorbitant inhumation burials or cremation burials and a son who they can't make up their mind which they want to use they're using both <laughs> Yeah, because the the way that Christians were being buried and the way that, as to take the term you use, the pagan, the pre-Christians, yeah. they do have differences in the way that they were being buried. So it's quite interesting to compare that. Yeah, I mean, I, I think this site is exceptional. And I mean, that's why I think the new movie, The Dig, is such a moment for us to finally get a fictional account of these amazing discoveries and to have that um, projecting out to a wider audience and especially valuable at a time when the lockdown means that the you know the tourist industry the heritage industry on its is on its knees the national trust has been under in the uk has been under massive criticism for daring to suggest that some of its properties have slaving links and that's caused a massive political storm um and you know i'm cancelling my subscription to the national trust because they have dared to mention that maybe a statue of a a slave on a fountain is offensive and maybe we need to actually be aware that some of these massive houses are owned by huge great whopping sugar plantation owners or whatever it may be you know and and they're trying to in the context of the black lives matter movement they're trying to to research and educate people about these deep links and this is causing a massive storm in the uk at the moment and we need these stories are positive stories, not denying the horrors of the past, but to engage people alongside those other conversations, I think. And I think that's why I think this movie release is 
is important. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And the other reason is that the film is so touching in its treatment of mortality. And I think that's why people at this time feel particularly formal about the eve of war, when people are struggling against their personal ill health, as Edith Pretty is shown as a very ill woman. And Basil Brown as a perhaps elderly, humble, you know, this touches a resonance with, I think, where we are as a, a, a position in the middle of a lockdown. And I think that's why it's appealing to people as well. That's what I'd like to, I think is going on. And so the film tells us about the dig, but it also chimes with so much else going on in our, in our society at the moment. Thank you so much. I really appreciate all the time you took to explain the Sutton Hoo archaeology dig. And now, for those who want to continue, part two, we will talk about the movie, as well as Professor Williams' own experiences. But, as usual, I'd like to thank my husband Jamie, our brood of kids, our family, our friends, and the teachers that have helped me so much. Without you, I wouldn't be adventuring through history. Un grand merci.